You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Faith seeking understanding. Now, uh, you might have been unfortunate when you were in college to have a philosophy class, <laughs> which is what I teach, and most of the students look at me like how un- unfortunate it is to be in here. But uh, you may have actually read or talked about or heard somebody talk about what's called the arguments for God's existence. You know, and there have been some very famous people that have given and critiqued these various arguments for God's existence. And uh, I've always been interested in them. Frankly, I guess I got a screw loose or something in my head. These things kind of fascinate me, why people want to use logic and reason to talk about God's existence. Uh, And so I uh, thought I would offer a series on this, not just on the arguments themselves. I mean, they're all interesting. They have weaknesses. They're not perfect. They've convinced some and they haven't convinced all. I think there's something illuminating about it. But what I'm mainly interested in, the reason why I'm offering this series here, is why did these people come up with these expressions? And they all were born out of these people's faith. Last week we looked at Anselm of Canterbury, who was buried, even though we don't know where his relics are, but he was buried in Canterbury Cathedral. A great man, profound philosopher, logician, great student of language and how words work. He was saturated with the Psalms and liturgy, singing and chanting. His whole life was wrapped up with the mystical power of these sacred words from Scripture and liturgy and prayers. And his whole life was dedicated as a Benedictine to the wonder of God's Word, not only in the text, but in the world itself. And through all that emerges, in my opinion, one of the most concise, appealing notions about why it's reasonable to think that God exists. And that's what we talked about last time. And so I wanted to understand his argument it's called the ontological argument for God's existence. Uh, ben, you remember what it was? <laughs> uh, remember the subtle modal logic that I talked about in that argument? All that, though, uh, as interesting as that is, was really born out of a deep heart, out of a profound sensitivity of God's presence. And so his mind yielded to his heart. His understanding tried to clarify what his faith knew. These are not just sort of cold, abstract notions of logic and subtle reasoning. They're an expression of faith. Well, today, I want to talk about another one of these great saints, and that is Thomas Aquinas. A uh, well-known man. Uh, in fact, I would say probably he's, if you just want to do a head count, he's probably one of the five most influential, significant figures in all of Western society for what he did really shaped centuries and centuries. And as there's been a little renewal of interest in Anselm of Canterbury, who died in the year 1109, there's been another renewal here in Thomas Aquinas, who died in the year 1274. Now what's interesting, and why I'm starting off with this picture with Thomas, is that on one side we have St. Augustine, that magnificent church father, profound thinker, controversial but orthodox and committed to the church, who died in the year 430, 800 years before um, uh, Thomas did. And on the other side is Aristotle, that great philosopher uh, of the classical Greek year who died in the year 322 B.C. 
One of the things, if you know much about Anse, I mean Thomas Aquinas, what he was able to do, he was able to bring the great insights of this Christian saint, this Bishop of Hippo, who in some ways or another was the most significant person in Christendom for centuries and centuries, and brought together this magnificent, rational, scientific, pagan philosopher, Aristotle, into a meaningful, coherent system to help explain the faith. Uh, Thomas was one of these rare people that come around in society that is able to see two incommensurable ideas that compete with one another and find a way to reconcile them into a greater understanding, a greater truth, a greater conviction. He had this magnificent ability to be able to synthesize what many people thought to be contradictory ideas, the very deeply ritual, very deeply theological understandings of St. Augustine, shaped out of Scripture, shaped out of the Church's beliefs, the creeds, and then this secular, scientific-based philosophy out of Aristotle. He was able to bring these two together to the point where he is eventually called the angelic doctor. And if any of you know much about Roman Catholicism, if you were reared a Roman Catholic, been to a Catholic school, you get a lot of Thomas Aquinas. And that's not, that's not by accident. In fact, various ways, various stages within Roman Catholicism since the 13th century, Thomas has been declared sort of the official teacher of Catholic faith. Now, I'm not a Roman Catholic, though to me the line is very thin. I don't make really deep lines separating Christians. Uh, and I too have been very much influenced in my own intellectual but personal faith as well by studying Thomas Aquinas. But I want to spend a little bit of time talking about the person of Thomas Aquinas. He was born to a noble family uh, in uh, Sicily, and uh, his parents uh, uh, had some ways and means about them, and they wanted Thomas to become sort of a great leader in the church. But he didn't want to do that. He wanted to join this new monastic order called the Dominicans to become a beggar, a mendicant. And uh, much to the chagrin and embarrassment of his family, eventually that's what he does. Now there's this famous story, I think it's probably true. Uh, there's enough biographies that tell the same story in almost the same way that when he finally, at the um, age of 18, I think it was, decided to join the Dominicans, on the way uh, to the abbey, uh, his brothers staged uh, a, a, a robbery that they uh, got two guys to rob him, tie him up, and they threw him into a castle. And he spent a year there, and they were trying to dissuade him of joining the Dominicans. And one of their tricks that they pulled on him you might have heard this story. They brought in a harlot by in his room to tempt him, to break his vow of celibacy. And uh, the story goes that he got this poker or stick of fire or whatever out of the uh, fireplace and he chased her out with that friend. He chased her out. Poor girl. <laughs> I feel sorry for her. But that was from sort of a symbol that he had made the turn, that he was committing all of his life not only his, his physical life, but his intellectual life now, to serve the cause of the church in this new order called the Benedictines. Now, he eventually makes his way up to Paris. He's educated by perhaps the leading intellectual Christian theologian at the time named Albert the Great or Albert Magninus, who was also a very original thinker, a deeply pious man, and they had a tremendous influence 
uh, Albert did upon Thomas. And there were a lot of other monks and Dominicans studying there at the University of Paris. And uh, he developed kind of an odd reputation. He was a big person. In fact, this sort of captures it. It was said he had this huge head. He spoke very quietly, slowly, very deliberately. And his nickname was the Dumb Ox. They called him the Dumb Ox because he moved slowly. He was big. And one time during class, Albert the Great recognizing just what a genius this person was and what a tremendously consequential person it was that, yes, you may call him a dumb ox, but one day this ox will bellow and change the world. And really, maybe he did. Maybe he has helped change the world. One of the things that he did that, to me, is one of the most miraculous things you can think of what he did is that it is said that he published 10 million words. That's Latin, too, if any of you ever translate Latin. Usually two to three English words for every Latin word. Ten million words. It was incredible. And I have in the bridged form here of the Summa Theologica, which I'm going to read from a little bit later. This is one of the great theological books in the history of the church. But he wrote commentaries on every book in the scripture. He wrote two commentaries on the book of Isaiah, as that, that was not enough. He wrote commentaries on, on all of what most all of Aristotle's works. Aristotle had been lost in Europe for centuries. Uh, Plato has always been around, though. Probably that was due to the influence of St. Augustine more than anything. And it was, the interestingly enough, the, the Muslim Arab scholars around Damascus and Baghdad that re- discovered Aristotle and translated Aristotle into Arabic, and they did all the first commentaries on Aristotle. Slowly, those texts made their way into Europe, And one of his sort of classmates named William was a great translator, and he translated Aristotle's works from Greek into Latin. And this was Thomas's first exposure to this magnificent Greek philosopher. But he read him in Latin before he read him in Greek. Slowly, and this was actually encouraged by the Pope. The Pope, at the moment I'm forgetting what the Pope was... uh, I have it here in my notes, but I'll... Anyway, he started a Dominican school in a town called Orvitas. And one of the charges that the Pope gave the scholars there, Thomas being one of them, was to, is to make uh, Aristotle relevant to the Christian truths. It's not that Christianity adjusted to Aristotle. That's a, that's a mistake. A lot of people... In fact, he got... That is, Thomas got into deep trouble with the bishop of Paris named Etene, who thought all this Aristotelian influence was heresy. And eventually, he, he wrote up a list of heresies, and Thomas was on that list because he had brought in so much um, Thomas, I mean, Aristotle's philosophy into Christian thinking. But the Pope wanted Aristotle to help further the faith. And so really what Thomas was able to do was to make Aristotle more accommodating to the great, come in, to the great Christian claims of the faith. And that's exactly what he was able to do. Well, uh, one time as he was making his way to Rome, that is Thomas, uh, they were walking by the great Colosseum and a lot of the other buildings, and uh, somebody asked him if he was really, you know, overwhelmed and impressed with these great buildings. And he was a mild man, he truly was. I think he was a humble mind, kind of like a great scientist is always humble by what they're trying to study. He said, yes, this is pretty significant, but frankly, I wish... We could find St. Christodom's lost manuscript. 
I don't know what that manuscript was about, but he was interested in it and he couldn't find it. Here he was in the splendor of Rome and his mind was trying to come to grips with something important for his faith. In fact, near the end of his life, somebody asked Thomas this, what are you most thankful for? Now, us who are not as sort of, I guess, erudite as someone like Thomas Aquinas may find this rather odd, but I'm going to make a case that is actually rather profound what he said. What I'm most, thank- what I'm most happy for most thankful for is I've understood everything I've read. Now you ask you, what was he reading? The Bible. Aristotle. He understood all that. He understood what Isaiah was talking about and what the Gospels were about and what the creation stories were about. He understood what the great book of Psalms was about and so on. And all that had affected him deeply within his heart. And he had this profound sensitive orientation towards God and worship. In fact, when he, uh, he had his first teaching career at the University of Paris, he was like a lecturer. He hadn't quite gotten the doctorate yet. And he then was assigned, as I've already mentioned, to go down to this town in Italy to start this, this, this Dominican college. And while he was there, uh, his, his attentions turned away from logic and Aristotle's philosophy into more devotional literature and tracts. And uh, he uh, wrote liturgies, in fact, uh, uh, he wrote a liturgy that is even still sung in the Roman Catholic Church today. And it's called, uh, Let My Tongue Sing. Uh, I, in fact, I'll even want online and listen to it. You can go to uh, on YouTube and there are all kinds of rend- uh, renditions of this. And it's associated with the Eucharist. He wrote that himself, expressing once again his deep piety. And there's another interesting story. This is one of those miracles that are attributed to Thomas that enabled him eventually to become canonized in 1323 that he had been writing under the charge of the Pope to write a treatise on the Eucharist itself, on the Corpus Christi. How could the body of Christ be in these elements? And as he's writing it, and once again, this is the legend about this, that uh, he was so much in prayer in this chapel, thinking about how to put this, that supposedly, I know these things are somewhat legend, somewhat true, but just go with the story. He is levitated into the ground. He's levitated. And the people who are there see this and they're aghast and amazed at it. And then they hear the crucifix, Christ on the cross, speak to him and says, My servant, you've done so well in, def- in representing me in the world. What can I do for you? And the people there were thinking, you know, he's going to ask for, you know, security or to become the abbot or a bishop or a pope or something like that. He said, what I really want is that I want to find that lost manuscript of St. Christodom's. <laughs> I don't know. That, uh, what, what would you do if you were given that choice by God? That is, look, I'll give you all that you want in life. What would you choose? What would you choose? Well, he was after something. He was after his call, his mission. His mission was to bring defense to the gospel. In fact, one of his first major books, in fact, he writes it there. Well, this event uh, is written, is called Summa Contra Gentiles. Summa, that is the sum, contrary to, in particular, the Muslims. He was charged by the Pope to give a defense of the Christian faith without appealing to authorities, similar to what we said last week about Anselm when he wrote this book called Monologion. And so he writes this book here as a way to defend the faith, as a way to show that this is reasonable, that this is something we should not only give our hearts but our minds to, that the Christian claim here is worth every bit of what we can bring to it. 
And so here's a man, a celibate, mendicant, Dominican monk, trained in the very best of the liberal arts tradition, steeped within the great resources of what Scripture offers to people, offering his very best to give a defense of the faith. I just have a series of pictures here. I, I, I like this one because uh, it shows you know, he's got church on one hand, building of the church, and a text of Aristotle on the other hand. They're not mutually exclusive. They're really not. Um, I know in my own life they're not. I try to not to be. I try to be as you know, thoroughgoing and academic as I can in my own job. But I'm a man of faith. I'm a called, ordained man of faith. And I don't think that they're mutually exclusive of one another, that they can reconcile. And Thomas is a great example of how faith and reason can be complementary. I mean, they're, ultimately they'll do something differently, but they're complementary to one another. And here he brings this great teaching of the wisdom and the insight of Aristotle. And he's still around, by the way, 2,300 years old. Aristotle's philosophy is still just as significant today. There's been a renewal of interest in Aristotle's philosophy as it was when he first gave them. And here's the great edifice of the church. Somebody likened what Thomas did, this famous architect, history of architecture named Panevsky, likened what Thomas did with these 10 million words that he sort of stacked up to Notre Dame Cathedral. He, he put them together. Here's Notre Dame Cathedral, the epitome of a Christian civilization that brings together both learning, science, and faith, and art into this great achievement pointing us towards the presence of heaven in our life. And here is this person who has done all this, this hard work, building idea upon idea upon idea, always directing us towards heaven. Now, Thomas, <clears throat> being influenced by uh, Aristotle, had, uh, and also probably because it, it was said of him that he walked everywhere. He didn't like to ride animals, might have been because he was too big or something, but he walked all over. And he walked from lower Italy all the way up to Paris at least two times. That's a long walk. Walked all the way around south uh, France and up and down Italy constantly, that he became sort of... Now, th this is my interpretation of it. Wouldn't you sort of look at the world a little differently if he walked everywhere? Mm -hmm. When was the last time you walked barefoot on the grass? Well, it changes things if you do. You sort of feel things. You get a little more in touch with the world. And I think, my hunch, is that this, this, the, these long walks that Thomas took equipped him to be attentive to the way the world is that there's something structured and orderly about our existence. There's morning and there's evening. There's seasons. There's growing and there's dying. There's hot and there's cold. There's wind and there's still. Here, all this familiarity with the outdoors made him realize that he's really part of a great order of things. And I would say, quite parenthetically, that you know, our own lives, in which we're so sort of sequestered away from nature, we sort of forget that at times, that we're really part of a big order. Uh, just to illustrate this point, uh, my son lives in Palo Alto, California. He's, he's graduating from Stanford University, and we're hoping he gets a job fairly close to where we are. Be that as it may, you know, sunny California, you, maybe you've been out there. San Francisco is quite different than Palo Alto in the weather. But he says when it's a cloudy day, everybody gets giddy. <laughs> Just way too much perfect weather out there. 
Why? Because I think there's probably some truth in that. You lose the sense that there's an order and there's a balance, there's a cyclical nature to, to, to the world and that we live in, and it has a way of sort of, uh, of making us aware that we're part of a bigger story than just our own personal story. And I think there is truth to that. What, he knew that personally, but he also knew that by studying the scriptures that God had created the world in seven days, and it was good. That there's something inherent to creation itself. That it's all directed in a particular way. And this is at the heart of what Aristotle also taught. Aristotle taught that all things were ordered in an intelligible way by what he called the unmoved mover, or what some people might want to call God. That Aristotle had a very methodical way of trying to elucidate what he considered to be the inherent order of things. For instance, this illustration of it. One of the great books, and in fact I use it, I teach it every year in a particular class that uh, Aristotle wrote, was called Nicomachean Ethics. It's a book on ethics that he named after his son. Well, at the heart of that book is this teaching that all aims have aims. You do what you do in order to reach a certain purpose. And that purpose determines why you do and how you do it. All aims have aims. And according to Aristotle, if you just think this through, there's got to be a final aim. An aim that will fulfill all aims and that will also justify itself. It doesn't need another aim to justify itself. Now, in Aristotle's thinking, that was happiness. And he goes on and explains that. So, in our ethical life, there's a structure. There's a way to act meaningfully and intelligibly and purposefully. And Aristotle also thought that was true with nature itself. And I'm thinking that Anselm, I'm excuse me, Anselm, well, Anselm did, but Thomas also had that sense that he could sort of intellectually and intuitively sense that all things were structured according to a certain purpose. And in this book, and this is probably just maybe a, maybe a half of what the real version is, he constantly is trying to expose, to clarify what is the inherent order and structure of our experiences. All of this leading to the glory of God. All of it is pointing us to how we can sense God. Now, uh, another miraculous story here, and I'll get to the arguments here in just a second. Um, remember, I told you that one story that Christ spoke out of the crucifix there and gave him that choice, and he chose the book that had been lost. Another story was that he was working on another document and that uh, he was in the chapel praying with the book, the manuscript in hand. He put the manuscript down and went deep into prayer. And when he woke up, according to the other monks, the book was finished. He hadn't finished it, but when he came to his from his prayers, the book was finished. And the story is that Christ came down and finished writing the book for him. And this sort of depicts this, this intimacy that uh, here's this great intellect nonetheless had affectionately with Christ here. I think this is one of the, um, I don't know, tender, uh, more intuitive. I like this picture of, of Thomas because his eyes are, are deep into contemplation and he's looking down on a book. Now, I, I just thought, uh, I wonder if anyone ever paints Thomas, depicts him in a way without a book in his hand, either scriptures or Aristotle. And I went online, you can look at all these images, of it, and I couldn't find one. Everyone has a book in his hand. Now, Bertrand Russell, if you know anything about Bertrand Russell, he is a very famous philosopher, social, intellectual, public intellectual, 
of the first and middle part of the 20th century, an Englishman. He despised Thomas Aquinas, just hated him. Uh, he thought he was no good as a philosopher. He said, you know, what he said so dry and boringly, people all know by common sense. And uh, he was dry. If you read him, I, you know, you, you, you've got to have a cup of coffee in your hand if you read him. Uh, he's meticulous. He is incredibly detailed. He is uh, argumentative. He will, he will say, uh, here are some objections, and here are my objections to those objections, and here's what I think. And he goes on and on and on and on and on with that. And a lot of people, students, you know, just go, enough, I can't take this. I'm going to go, you know, read the newspaper or something. Nothing against newspapers, Victor, but... (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, you think, gosh, what's this man after? What What he's after is clarity. That's what he's after. He's after precision. He's after finding God in all this. And let's just work as hard as we can to do that. We can understand how God has made the world in a way in which it's possible to have a meaningful life. Not just in the sanctuary, which he knew. He knew it to be in the sanctuary. He knew how important the prayers were and the liturgy and the Eucharist. He knew all that. But also in the world, in our daily walks. Is it possible to see God when you walk from you know Rome to Paris? And he's going to say, yes, it's possible to see God. And all these ways in which we experience this great big creation. In fact, you ever heard of G.K. Chesterton? Magnificent writer. I wish I could write one hundredth as well as he writes. Um, he's been a guy I wish I could just sit down and drink coffee with. Uh, well, anyway, he wrote a very interesting biography, more of an interpretation of, of Thomas Aquinas. And in it, he called Thomas the doctor of creation. The doctor of creation. You know, some doctor, uh, some theologians, philosophers, or doctors of of the Eucharist, or doctors of the Church. But Thomas was a doctor of creation. That his great pursuit was to try to clarify how God has created the world in a way in which it's all aimed towards some grand purpose to experience the glory of God, but how God has also left God's imprints within creation. You can sense this. In great hymns, you can sense this in profound prayers. But you can also sense this in logic. That's what he wanted to do. He wanted to say, just as the Psalms will lift us up to the glory of God, logic can also lift us up to the glory of God. By understanding how God has created the world in a way in which we can see all this is ordered towards God's glory. Now, like a lot of saints... Uh, he was tremendously adored once he died, uh, and eventually he is, as you know, canonized, and he is the angelic doctor of the Catholic faith. And supposedly, when there was the um, petition or application, I think, for his sainthood, um, uh, there were about 95 different miracles attributed to him, and most of those occurred after his death. And so this painting here sort of captures how he is sort of adored by many people. I'll make a comment about that in just a second. <coughs> <Pardon me. coughs> These are pagan philosophers. That's St. Augustine, Ambrose, I uh, don't know the others. But here even in heaven, Thomas is up there instructing all these great, great, great people on the church's side and on the pagan philosopher's side about God's great truth. Kind of captures some of that. <coughs> uh, I will say this 
as good as he is, he's not the final word. There, I know there are a lot of people, I've been in various meetings in which if you quote Thomas, that's all you need to say. No, that's not the truth. Thomas is a means, and he would say that as well. He's a means to understanding something. He's not the end of our understanding. And so as great as he was, all 10 million words that he published, there are other ways in which we still can understand and appreciate the glory of God. But he helps us do that. And that's why I'm teaching this class. The more we can understand why he came up with what he did, I think the more we can understand why we should come up with what we should as well. That we can apply our minds and hearts as well to understand the glory of God in creation. Now what I want to do is to do the hard work. Now, if you're not into this, I'll let you leave. <laughs> uh, this is the hard work of understanding these arguments for God's existence. <clears throat> uh, they're found in Summa Theologica, that is the Sum of Theology. Uh, in is what's called question two. He writes a book according to certain questions. And uh, here at the very beginning of the book, he has a section there on God's existence. That's what this question is, God's existence. And then he asks another question, in what way do we know God exists? And he comes up with what's called these five proofs for God's existence. Now, a couple of things I need to say before we look at them. Each of these is taken in light of how we experience the world. That is, all of us will experience the world in certain sort of fundamental ways. And he then will take that as a way of arguing to the existence of God. Number two, though, is the difficult thing. This is where a lot of philosophers will argue with Thomas on this. But it was also an Aristotelian position. It's also what Aristotle taught. And that is the impossibility of Infinite regress. Infinite regress. Regress is going backwards. All right. Infinite is that you can go on backwards forever, eternally, infinitely. And he argues that you cannot do that. It's impossible for something to go always backwards, infinitely regressing. I'll try to explain why he thinks that in just a minute. That's part of this. Now, if, if I will say this philosophically. If you reject number two, this stuff would just be interesting but not convincing. All of these arguments that he has is based on the idea that things have to start somewhere or another. They cannot go on eternally, infinitely. Three, and, and, and he admits this, they don't prove anything about the nature of God. We don't find God as a redeemer. We don't find God as, as holy or righteous in these arguments. All they do, though, is just as try to say, in light of the way we experience the world, we must conclude there is a God. Because the world cannot explain itself. Creation cannot account for why it is. Now, we might be able to account for things in creation through scientific laws. But scientific laws cannot ever say why there is a creation. And so this argument sort of is all built on this notion. In light of the way we experience the world, we have to assume that God made it. Otherwise, it wouldn't be intelligible. And then four, he is greatly influenced by Aristotle. In fact, in some ways, these are just sort of a, a reshaping of Aristotle's arguments for God's existence. Okay, and here are the five. Um, I thought I would spot read one of these just so you can get a little flavor of how Aristotle talked about these. But briefly... We all know things move. I just moved across the room right here. Fair enough. We all know things move. 
What he wants to show is the very nature of motion presupposes something started at all. I'll give you a start. The same thing with causality. If you burn wood, it will turn into fire. Here the fire burns the wood and it turns into fire. There's a cause and effect. And he's going to argue this is fundamental to the world. The world couldn't be what it is without causality. You drop something and it hits on something. You woke up, you eat. Our whole life is centered around this notion of causality. What he wants to show is that there's got to be something that started all that. And the same thing with contingency. Now, this is a little more tricky. Contingency means something can exist, but it also cannot exist. You know, for instance, I'm 66 years old. I know I look 86, but I'm 66. Uh, well, 86 years ago, I didn't exist. And 86 years, I'll just be safe. 86 years from now, I won't exist. Does that mean I don't exist now? No, I'm a contingent being. At one time, this, this chair didn't exist, and at one time, it will not exist. Everything we know is contingent, right? Couldn't you imagine that it's possible for even the earth not to exist? Yeah, it's imaginable. The sun, right? We hear talk about this all the time. The solar system, yeah. Everything that we know in the world is contingent. It could not exist. It's possible. Well, all that presupposes then, if everything was contingent, nothing would have started. If everything could not be at one time, there was something, I mean, there was nothing. So there has to be a necessary being that's not contingent to start the world. The fourth one here, from degrees of perfection. And this is when he talks about things being greater or better or good or righteous. Those are all standards. We make standards like, well, like here it is. It's now, whatever, 18 or 19 minutes till 11. Well, that's, I have to admit, a little arbitrary, don't you think? I mean, your, your watch may say, you know, 16 till or, or 20 till. Time is in some ways a little arbitrary. But we've got a standard somewhere in order to have some sort of consensus among ourselves. And the same thing about taste. You know, some things taste better than others. You have some sort of standard. The quality of greatness, of goodness. That is, you think some things are better in what they do than other things. All along, according to Aquinas, that presupposes some standard that is not a standard in comparison to another standard. It is its own comparison. And that has to be God. And then finally, the fifth one here, he says that... uh, if we just pay attention to how things are ordered, they seem to be always aiming towards something that fulfills the experience. Otherwise, the world would be utterly chaotic. Instead of, you know, for instance, like with the human genome. About it, Next fall, we're going to have a big conference on the ethics dealing with the, the human genome. Big controversial issue. But you can look at your genes and you can kind of see, well, male, female, brown, hair, blue eyes, and so on. You can kind of see your future unfold in all that. And we understand more about human life in that way, that we all are sort of designed to go a certain way. That is, I was designed to grow, to become an infant, an adolescent, a young adult, a middle-aged guy, now a senior adult. I, I mean, this is just natural. I'm not making this happen. I'm not willing to get old. <laughs> I'm willing to stay younger. Uh, 
All that is part of the, how nature has kind of an intelligibility to it. Otherwise, it would be just chaos. It would be slipping into randomness. Your genetic code is not designed for you to blow apart. It's designed for you to be organized a certain way to mature. And what Thomas said is that the whole world is designed that way. Which means, some way or another, there has to be an intelligible designer to account for the intelligible design that we all experience within the world. Okay, those are the five arguments. All right, what I'm going to do is to read a little bit about the first one. It probably is the easiest of the five to understand. And we'll understand a little bit more why he says there's the impossibility of infinite regress. The first and more manifest way, that is, the first and that which seems to be indicative of all the other ways, is the argument from motion. It is certain and evident to our senses that is how we look at the world. Don't you think things move? Of course you do. Oh, <laughs> waving at me. Okay. Uh, evident to our senses that in the world some things are in motion. Now, whatever is in motion is put in motion by another. For nothing can be in motion except it is in potentiality toward that which it is in motion. For instance, as I am moving right now, I am potentially getting to this spot. And when I'm here, I'm no longer potentially getting here. I am here. So motion is the reality of things becoming a potential about something. For motion is nothing else than the reduction of something from potentiality to actuality. But nothing can be reduced from potentiality to actuality except by something in a state of actuality. Now, I know that's subtle, but for instance, I'm walking here. If there were no point to which I could walk, could I walk? If there was no point from which I could walk, could I walk? No. To walk, I have to walk from and I have to walk to something. So there's got to be a place to walk, to walk and from walking to walk. Actuality, that place right there, has to precede me trying to walk to it. All right. So what he argues then, in light of the in light of the whole world being in a state of motion, if you just think it through, there's got to be something that never moved that caused things to move. Now it is not possible that the same thing should be at once in actuality and potentiality in the same respect, but only in different respects. For what is actually hot cannot simultaneously be potentially hot, right? That is, once I stop, I'm no longer walking. For what is actually hot, but it is simultaneously potentially cold, it is therefore impossible that in the same respect and in the same way a thing should be both mover and moved, that it should move itself. Therefore, whatever is in motion must be put in motion by another, something that enables me to move. If that by which it is put in motion be itself be put in motion, then this also must needs be put in motion by another, something moves something that moves something that moves something, and that by another again. But this cannot go on to infinity because then there would be no first mover. 
and consequently no other movers, seeing that the subsequent movers move only insofar as they put in motion by the first mover. As the staff moves only because it is put in motion by the hand, therefore it is necessary, logically necessary, rationally, intelligibly necessary, to arrive at a first mover, put in motion by no other, and this everyone understands to be God. And he does the same sort of analysis with causality, contingency, degrees of perfection, and the world's intelligible design. Now, uh, there's a lot of subtlety in that about actuality and potentiality. I, I admit that. And I'm not saying you necessarily have to agree with it. And I, I understand the sort of logical problems with some of that. But what is he trying to do with this? What's the purpose in coming up with this? What he's trying to say is that God has created the world and every instance of it, every motion that I take, begs the question there must have been a God that, that caused the world to be the way it is. Everything that is, is an effect of a cause, according to Thomas, everything that is the, the, the longest end of a chain of causes is an indicator there had to be a first cause. The very fact that I'm getting older by the moment here presupposes that there was a necessary being, a God, that made the world the way it is before we need to be in it. And this is what he's trying to get across. And this rather, I may I admit, sterile, sort of austere, logical way, seem like he's splitting fine hairs and doing all this, but really what he's talking about is just experiencing the wonder of God in every instant of our life. I couldn't move. I wouldn't have been caused. I'm not a contingent being. I'm not who I am. I'm part of a designed world because a God has brought all this in. And so what this does... I'll stop here, and then I'll, if you have any questions, I'll bring them up. What this does in this rather methodical, logical way is to open up our minds to understand what faith is already convinced of, that God is our Creator, and that every minute, every instant, every breath, every ounce of my life here is in a sense a witness, a testimony, that God has brought all this in. And one of the greatest things we can do is to glorify our Creator for that reason. And so here's a great mind, a tremendous intellect, the epitome of what faith and understanding can do, uh, enabling us to deepen our faith by the application of logic and Aristotle in doing so. And I feel, I know you, you may think I've gone over the top in doing this, but... Um, Devotionally, I'll read the Psalms every morning. I follow the Book of Common Prayer, by the way. And I read this along with it, devotionally. You, you know, I'm, I've gone over the top. I've, 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 I've drunk the Kool-Aid. I've taken the blue pill or something. Uh, but to me, Thomas is helping me understand what the Psalms... When it's, I mean, look at the Psalms. The glory of God, the whole heavens declare the mercy of God. How can we see the mercy in the heavens of God? Of the heavens? How can you see the glory of God in dirt and grass and fall weather? Well, he did. Because all of this is ordered in a way that indicates that it was the result of a loving creator. Hence, he's the doctor of creation. All right. Any questions or comments? Anybody? Have you heard these five arguments before? You haven't? Okay. Well, I've done a little duty then exposing you to something very uh, 
I think, powerful. Yes? Who? You've done a, a beautiful job here of, of presenting <coughs> what I consider to be overwhelming uh, rational thinking about God, but there are people like E.O. Wilson, who I've read with regard to entomology more than anything else, but uh, he's, uh, he's pretty smart, too. He is? <coughs> he's an Alabamian, too. Yeah, he's agnostic, and uh, he is firmly thinks that everything, the entire universe, is, is evolutionary. And I know you don't have time to go into that, but it, it might be a, you know, a good teaching to... Right. To, uh, uh, you know, present what he thinks right. and what our argument would be because evolution is almost considered to be by the secular side of society, certainly the way we all tend to be. Yeah, like it's the final explanation. Uh, you know, Thomism is not contrary to the notion of evolution. It's not. You could think God is creating the world to be intelligibly designed by evolution. And a lot of great Christian intellectuals do that. Uh, there was a tremendous, I forget what priest uh, he was part of, but a philosopher that taught at Notre Dame for decades named Ernst McMillan. And uh, he was Thomistic, but he was also a, a biological scientist as well. And he thought evolution and Christian faith are not mutually exclusive. Now, they can become mutually exclusive. Any scientific notion in Christian faith can become mutually exclusive if you disagree with number two. That's the key point. That is the impossibility of infinite regress. E.O. Wilson would say, "Yeah, we can, we can. That's right. It goes all the way back. You can explain this infinitely, or come up with some sort of grand unified theory. We don't have to presuppose anything other than created matter to account for created matter." And see, that's the watershed issue right there. This is what separates scientific. Uh, this is what separates atheistic science and theistic science. To me, that issue right there. It's not whether. This number two? Yes. yes, that's right. That's right. Conceptually, this is the yes. this is the battlefield, I think. Now, um, we need to go here in just a couple of minutes, but let me bring one other point up. Starting with the Enlightenment, <clears throat> that great German philosopher whom we're going to talk about in a couple of weeks named Immanuel Kant, followed by many other people. One of the things that they sort of convinced <clears throat> Europe and America of is that there are no final causes. The world is just sort of, it's designed, but it's no good reason why it's designed. It's done all haphazardly. It was all just kind of by chance. Yeah, things are ordered, but it wasn't because it was ordered. It's orderly, but not ordered. Okay, and that's, that's the elimination of final causes to the world. That became sort of a dogma, I think, for science and, and philosophy. Well, in the last probably 25 years in philosophy and science, even hardcore natural scientists, they're beginning to realize that they really cannot do what they want to do intellectually without presupposing some sense of final cause. It is intellectually a necessary concept. I tend to think that way. I think that's a defensible position. That is the impossibility of infinite regress. Something has to start it. Whole intellectual kind of ability to see cause and effect presupposes something that started all that. But I'm not, uh, this is a big, big sort of generalization. I would say intellectually, 
for the church. The big battlefield will be with number two in our secular world. Can we, in a way, make it plausible that there are final causes in the world? And once so, then I think you'll even see a greater renewal of Thomas's philosophy because he shows a way in which to think this. All right, I appreciate you being here. Next week, we're going to look at an entirely different kind of guy, just as deep in his faith, but incredibly volatile, and that's Pascal. I love Pascal. He's a great man, had some great things, and he comes up with an interesting argument for God's existence too. All right, I'll close us with a prayer. Open our eyes, O Lord, that we may see thy glory in every step we take, every breath we take. And we are so grateful for this wonderful, majestic life that we've been given. Help us, Lord, to be witnesses of thee both in our hearts and our mind. Bless each of us, O Lord. This I pray in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.